0: You know, if, is there any chance we could like summon Edwin and get him on the call? Because I'd be interested in hearing him talk about his election drama. I have to admit, I don't really understand what's going on, but I see people posting on social media about it.
1: Well, I'd love to talk to Edwin about his electra- election drama, but I I've, this is the first I've, he- hear, I've heard of it, Ellie. Would you um, care to give us the, uh, the gist? Because, yeah, I, I didn't realize there was election drama.
0: Um, I honestly, I don't understand it well, so I'm not a good person to try to speak to it, which is exactly why I want him to come on. Um, but it seems like he, as a candidate requested some process of reviewing the votes and the thing is like, he didn't win, lose by a margin that was small enough for that to be promising in terms of actual Uh, electoral gain you know and so it probably is a result of something else like I'm not sure why the process is being taken um, and I'm sure there's a reason but not one that I understand and people are kind of like like a little mad at him for undergoing this process that I don't understand Um, so I just don't want to I don't want to make any claims that I don't have a basis for making, which is hard to do because people are upset right now. And so I like, you know what I mean? I don't want to necessarily um, inject some kind of subjective bias, but I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a a great example of the things you miss when you're not on Facebook. So I had no idea this was happening. Um, I did see the, the margin of the, the defeat. Um, So surprising that any, um, any contest, contesting of the um, margin or the vote would be fruitful. But I guess, uh, uh, like you, Ellie, I have no idea. It would be all speculation. I don't know what um, the basis is for um, for trying to get a recount or whatever it is that is happening there. Maybe Richard, you know more. We're trying to figure out, um, it's a, a, a race in, in, I think, the District 4A in Moorhead for State Senate or State Rep with one of our uh, members, Edwin Dale-Hahn. And apparently, uh, I guess Ellie knows more. So I missed everything, I'm, I'm finding out right now, but um, apparently there was either a recount or some sort of process-oriented, process-directed um, review of the election in that district um, or in that um, precinct. Do you, do you know anything, Richard? And I, I do I, I,
2: I don't, I don't. I've been just kind of slowly making my way back to Facebook. Um, and I, I guess in today is the first time I bought the paper, and and um, I kind of just getting back to subscribing to the form a little bit since they seem to be behaving a little better. Um, but no, I, I don't. I'll have to. I would have to look into that. I could ask Kylie. I mean, is it is it a matter of Ellie? Maybe what, what do you know?
0: Well, it would probably be better to ask um, Minnesota partisans. Oh. So I don't think that's. I don't think that. Uh, the Dem PL has any advantage here. It would definitely be the DSL. This, this is not the put be... side. Yes. Okay. Correct.
2: Yeah.
0: And also, Richard, you you have we have your you have your own kind of sort of online drama where I think some people kind of misunderstood your bio's intentions. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. So that was that was um I, I was hoping it's a few people would pick up. So yeah, that that um so I I actually so it was it seemed like it was um indigenous folks who had a little bit of um had some concerns and they voiced their opinions we did go back i did go back and edit the bio right away um so um and and um and i thanked everybody for their input and their you know their 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 concerns i actually got a call from I, i'm not sure if you're familiar with um uh, logan john davis so he's I'm not uh, Okay, so he's a journalist, and he lives up north. And um, so I guess him and some other people started kind of creeping around on Mayan Royals' Facebook pages. And, um, you know, they're they're like, so he calls me. He calls a friend of mine first, um, who he saw pictures on my Facebook to kind of validate who I was or to vouch for who I was. And then he, he called me, and, um, you know, he's like, well, you know, nobody knows any Rockefellers from... Standing Rock. Did somebody steal that name? Um, you know, and and um, you know, you know, he Royal doesn't have any pictures on his page. Um, you know, so we started a dialogue, and I, I guess I told him kind of where I, I wrote the bio in a very quick kind of like kind of angry place because of what Royal had been going through with the Department of Labor. Uh, he had gone through a mediation process that I, I think was a little bit jilted in in some ways, but but. He, he could have taken a little more control there. So I, I won't go down that path, but um, and so there was some concern about the language I used. Um, and he, so he asked me, you know, like, well, is Royal from Standing Rock? And I'm like, yeah, His, his what's his family's name? I mean, he interrogated me a little bit. I'm like bird horse and, and, um, and then Royal did talk to him later too. And I'm like, yeah, my husband probably is the only indigenous Rockefeller that walks the face of the earth. I don't know what to say to that. Um, you know and when Royal asked me to marry him and take his name you know that meant a lot to him and for me I, I was adopted so much growing up that I have no loyalty to any name um so <clears throat> to, to me it was to honor kind of honor him and, and I, I warned him though apprehensively there might be some ugliness and then you know one of the questions that I thought was interesting is this man who is indigenous asked me then does he look native and I I, I kind of didn't know what to do with that question. Um, in the end, my conversation um, with uh, Mr. Davis ended very positively. Um, he actually is considering I invited him to join the board. Um, um, so, yeah. So as a, as a white person who wants to be a, a good ally and, you know, wants to really be someone who calls out, you know, institutional racism and be an anti-racist. And you know, understand that you know we constructed, we created racism. So how do we, you know, it's not a race. We're all one race, we're all human race. Um, you know, these boxes and 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 so um I I, I was glad that people took the time to correct me. And and then the picture, unfortunately, was a picture that I, I just recently had taken for, for some other things too, and um, is, is a, is a pretty powerful picture, I guess. Um, but, um, so yeah, it was a little bit of drama. You're correct. I think, I think we, uh, you know, we invited everyone to come to the next conversation, whoever was there, you know, and had concerns to come to the next conversation that week and visit, you know, meet me and meet others in the conversation. Um, kind of ironically, though, no one showed up. (laughs) Um, you know, that no, no one showed up. So basically I think the perception was, is that I was coming across as some kind of white savior, which that's not what I I am. Um, and then two, you know, to the other part of speaking to, you know, I, I do have the honor. I am, I, I am in rooms of all individuals of color, you know, from East and West Africa in the United States, um, you know, in African-Americans from the U.S., um, And, you know, because of my job, right? And and I love my job and I love those engagements and those interactions. And we have, you know, during our breaks and stuff like that, we have some pretty frank discussions and, you know, I've even caught my own organization recently in applying unequitable pay practices. And I'm trying to figure out how I rein that in, you know, or how I bring that to their attention because... You know, they to sort of give you an example. They're offering a white man, a young white man, fifty cents more an hour for less experience than they are offering a black the black women. Okay, and I, and I, I I can see that. So I, I guess I'm you know I'm figuring out how to be the best ally I can, realizing that I I am. You know, you so that was the other part that was kind of hard for me. People have a little bit of a hard time with some of the language I use, and maybe I need to save that language for you know not certainly short. Um, kind of, you know, quick um, snippet things and save them for essays and larger dialogues. But you know, I you, you told me I'm a colonizer. You know, I mean, you, you I've been called that, and 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 I was trained, quite frankly. You know, if you do, one thing that most people don't know about me is I um I come from a very violent background. Um, my my upbringing was very sexually and physically violent. Um, it was very white supremacist. It was very poor. And so that that, that those frames of reference have given me certain insight. And I, I guess I tried to relay some of that and that wasn't the best place to do it. Does that make sense, Ellie?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing how you responded to that situation. And um, it sounds like you responded to it with grace. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's
2: um, important. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I am, uh, you know, I realize that, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, just a human like all of us. Um, I, I am not a god. You know, I have very little power. And I think that even if I had a lot of power, I would hope that I would be someone who would re- remember humility and, and good. So, thank you, Ellie. That that makes me feel good because it was it was a bit of a challenging situation to find myself in. It maybe that's maybe why it needed to happen for me to learn and grow from that. So.
0: Thank you. So yeah, eventful uh, week for um, <laughs> Civic Cooperator affiliates.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, thanks for everyone for joining us to, with to, at the No Name Podcast here at the Civic Cooperators. Um, Richard, I just wanted to validate what you said about um, discovering some structural inequalities in, in inequities within your own organization. Um, I think, oh thanks for bringing that to light, first of all, because I think it's a great example of how difficult it is to, you know, I, I would assume the organization is structured to uh, to bring these things to light, but they still happen to um, manifest within the organization itself, yeah, which well, is a, a great example of of how insidious it is and what it is kind of a cultural um, artifact and remnant from the past that continues to bubble up. Even when you're, you know, Consciously and intentionally trying to address it, it still it finds a way to sneak in there. So it's it's like a day to day practice to reassess and self evaluate. Um, that not only organizations, um, you know, other organizations that haven't historically taken that path, but you know, organizations that are organized around that very principle. <laughs> it, there's there's no way to just put it on um, cruise control and assume you have figured well, it out because it's a daily it, thing. Please
2: make no mistake. I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to put myself out there too far because. I've just discovered something that I've kind of always suspected and I haven't brought it to leadership yet. So I'm trying to still navigate how I'm going to do that in a, in a graceful kind of, um, you know, a, a way to, you know, hopefully not get myself fired, but, you know, because there should be no reprisal in those things, but also, you know, a way that, you know, just where I'm not trying to shame them, but it's just, that I need to, because I did work for an organization before where I found that in a very, it was a multinational organization. And the response was much different. When I discovered that they were hiring in white men at higher rates than the, than they were paying current employees who are both women and Hispanic, they immediately adjusted. The company immediately adjusted. And that was new flyer. And, and that, that was incredible. So some some organizations, especially smaller ones, if I bring that up, I might get a little more pushback. So I, I don't know what that's going to look like, and um, so I, you know, I'm not going to share where I'm working and that kind of thing. But, but um, yeah, so that it, it, it just because you find it and it exists doesn't mean you, you necessarily know how to. Bring, there's a mechanism to bring it forth.
0: Um, right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, and and I would say you know part of that is is. Um, We've all adopted uh, market logic as our kind of operating principle, operating system, really. And so uh, you can you can try to think that you're you know you can work every day towards being less and less prejudiced and biased. Um, but at the same time, we're operating within this market that has a market logic that says someone's value is what they'll accept for their labor. And so you, since we live in a system of structural inequalities and, and racism and sexism and what have you, um, you can you can make an offer um, of less money to to the same person or maybe to a a different person with more experience um, because that's what the market will bear. And so if you're operating within this market logic, um, it's super simple to to make those mistakes even when you're intentionally operating in a different way in different spheres. And so it really, again, it goes back to the smart, the way we've let market logic become our operating principle in all, all facets of our life when it should just have its own little compartment that it operates, but we should have a larger operating system, operating principle um, for the entire, entirety of our lives or the way we wanna structure the things we think are important to us. And it's tough, it's so tough because you know, market logic is uh, front of mind in, in almost all decisions. I want to open up a little space here for Jim. Jim, I don't know if you're um, able to talk. I see you're on mute right now. Um, how how has the week gone for you? And uh, had you heard anything about Edwin? Because I I have been in the dark. If you're talking, you're you're still muted, by the way. Well, Jim, if uh, if you are there, we'll come back to you later, or at least I'll I'll prompt you later. Um, until then, uh, Ellie, me and you had had some texts this past week about North Dakota briefly joining <laughs> Texas <Ooh. laughs> in its uh, attempt to uh, I don't know its attempt to. Uh, Throw the election results of other states, which is a very preposterous legal argument on its face. Um, but what came out of that, you know, they, it was it was already thrown out. It's already it was it was a very quick news week on that front. Um, however, what came out of it was um, an idea that Ellie and I tossed back and forth via text, which would be, and I think I'm I, I'm going to execute on this idea tomorrow morning, but. I wanna talk it out a little bit. It's the idea of a open records request to the AG's office. Um, and I'm not sure who's, um, if you've, we're following that story specifically, but so the um, attorney general, attorneys general um, Wayne, uh, said that he, his office had received thousands of calls and emails asking them to investigate, join the lawsuit. I don't know exactly what they're asking for. But he cited this um overwhelming public support to um you know sign our name to this preposterous lawsuit and uh and so you know I think and then he also said it wouldn't cost us anything so he said what's the, you know what's the basically saying what's the what's the difference really a bunch of people wanted me to do it and it doesn't cost us anything so I did it it was kind of his rationale so I think for me the interesting part about that idea is that um number one um Either he's admitting that he lets public opinion dictate how he um, enforces the law, which is interesting. Um, you know, it opens up the possibility that next time we want the, the AG's office to act, all we have to do is call him up a bunch and he'll do it, which I'm I I, I, I have, I'm doubtful whether he actually would do that, but he's, he's opened up the possibility that that's how his office operates. And obviously the second thing is he's lying and uh, <laughs> it wasn't thousands of people, it was a couple of very important people. Uh, that talked to him and uh, and then he just did it because there was no real consequence to it. So either way, um, what I'm interested in finding out is to see if there were a bunch of calls and emails and whether they have a, an unofficial, informal or, or official and formal process for joining their names to these kinds of lawsuits. Um, because they basically just kind of sign your name and I don't even know if you sign your name you just tell them they, they can put your name on it when they file it. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to just see what what they're, what they're doing exactly in that office. Uh, it's, it, it, it opens up some interesting avenues of rhetoric down the line, if depending on what they're able to share with us from an open records request standpoint. Ellie, um, I know you, you're coming at it from a slightly different angle. Um, how, what do you think about those two potential outcomes based on we you know if we're able to get any information out of the AG's office from an open records request?
0: Well, I think that um, even my thoughts on this are of two different points of view. Um, so there's my point of view as a bureaucrat who has processed um, open records requests before, at least or at least helped with substantial aspect of the work. Um, and then I have my point of view as, uh, I guess, a political psychologist. Um, so. I think that Stengem did what he did at, because it was probably a combination of a genuinely large amount of constituents contacting him like that the contact process probably was really increased. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the right or that you know the Trump favoring right was organized enough to get a bunch of North Dakotans to call Stengem. I I believe that. Um, and, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll see, right? I mean, we can, we can prove or disprove this. So I guess I'm looking forward to seeing how it shakes out, but I certainly find it plausible. But I think that it, you know, perhaps public opinion of Republicans pushes him around. Um, so I think it might not be that public opinion literally pushes him around, and I, I think it might not be that simply a few powerful people told him to do this, although he probably heard from some powerful people uh, as to what to do. It does seem like most of the NDGOP has been uh, walking in lockstep with Trump at post-election, so um, it's hard to say exactly, but I think that he's responsive to Republicans. He's become a, a partisan hack, it seems, Um but anyway, as someone who has helped with open records requests or helps uh, fulfill them for requesters, I just have ideas as to how to be so incredibly specific um, that you get what you're asking for. Because if you are not super precise in your request, there's a lot of plausible opportunity for a misinterpretation and you not getting the right data from that agency. So I think I can just help us get what uh, you really wanna request.
1: Yeah, you wanna spend a couple of minutes thinking about what that might be? Cause I, I, my ideas off the top of my head would be, I wanna know how many calls the office has received between the election, the day after the election and the day that they joined to the, the lawsuit, just volume. Uh, of calls. And I also want to see volume of calls for the last 12 months on a monthly basis. So just how many calls were placed to the office. So we can have like an average, your average, or at least a rolling average by by month um, for what kind of um, phone call volume they get at the office. And then, so a couple, uh, I guess, it's kind of metadata requests. And then specifically emails relating to the election, whether um, for organ- basically any election-related emails from the day after the election until the day they joined the lawsuit, and that may be obviously a much um, a much more open to interpretation <laughs> request. So I, I think on that second one, we'd have to be more specific on the the exact way we requested that yeah. um, data. I, I would like to see.
2: I think. I think I really would
1: like to see that, and then specific to.
2: Like I would like to see what the call volume was after it was announced, after he said this, because, you know, I don't know if anyone in the room other than myself called, but, um, so it, it got to the point where when you called, they simply asked you, do you support or oppose the Texas, you know, our involvement in the Texas? Wow. System? Really? And then you answered yes or no. And then they hung up on you. <laughs> um, so when I said I supported, uh, or that I opposed, um, I, I they hung up on me, um, the one that had, a, 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 I believe, a British accent. Um, and then the second time I called back, it was the same individual who picked up and I asked, well, what if I oppose? Thank you. And I got hung up on again. And then so I'm wondering if they're ticking each one of these calls. Right. And so I called back a third time and I I had asked, are you a real person? Um, and I wanted to cancel out my previous support in case they misinterpreted that and said I oppose. And then just out of curiosity, like right around late before four thirty, I called back one more time, um, and it was a different voice. So that tells me it was the right person. Same question: Do you support or oppose? And and I I, I said oppose. So can the same people kind of call back and support? I mean, if thousands of calls. Was it one, you know, one or two or three people calling, you know, and, and doing the same thing, or you know, how do they, how do they, how do they tally that kind of thing? You know, do they correspond it with phone numbers and caller ID, or you know, there, there's a lot of kind of like interesting things there. I, but yeah, that was my first reaction. But I could see, uh, to Ellie's point, where there might be some truth that there was some organized efforts for North Dakota to join, but. I'm kind of skeptical and I lean more towards, Ryan, your idea of maybe a few very influential people. Um, But that that is very interesting. It would be I I, I need to become more familiar myself with that request, those requests of public information.
1: Yeah, well, I can give you a a little bit of what what I learned. Sorry, sorry, let me jump in real quick. Um, Basically, anyone can make a request. It doesn't have to be a North Dakota resident. It doesn't have to be um, a citizen of the United States. It can be anybody. You don't have to prove your identity, um, and you can make it. You can make it in any form. So you could call up and request it. You could email and request it. You could send a letter. Um, you could go in person and request it. And uh, they have a couple. Of, they have a list of things you can't request. Obviously, sensitive information. Um, law force, law enforcement information, stuff like that. Um, health, um, health information for state employees, stuff like that. Um, but it, it's pretty simple, and there's no um, real form. You can do it in any form you want, um, and they'll accept it. Um, and then to your point, to your um, what you related to us, Richard, you called in after they announced it, correct? And then you, and then they—they had they already had a, either an auto attendant, like a recording of someone, or they had someone or live people, right? Live people call, just asking yes or no yeah. questions and then hanging up on you. Yeah, because I—I called in to
2: be honest and completely transparent. I really wasn't. I mean, I knew that we had joined. I had just heard the news, um, and I didn't. I didn't kind of know how to process it. And then I responded, of course, to a, an email. That came, you know, saying, you know, call the, the 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 AG's office and let them know what you think of this. And as someone who had just participated on a very small part in the canvassing board process, you know, for the state of North Dakota for Cass County, and knowing what that looks like, and knowing, I think I shared with you how I transferred a ballot and stuff. I took that as like a slap in the face. Like, and then also, we have no business. We have no business telling them how to run their elections, right? That that is not that. <laughs>
1: it's like, like wow over here <laughs> you know <laughs> <Big degree over laughs> so here. yeah uh ellie I, I interrupted you what were you going to say
0: um i wanted to say uh that well thank you richard for your um data gathering uh so you you put some kind of shape to the process that i think could help us make a better request But I was also primarily going to talk about the request for email. Um, So when you think about something like email, something that's an electronic system, you have to kind of query it in the way that it gives you what you want. And so it's like you kind of got to talk to the machine as much as the human when you're making the request. So when we think about what emails we want, we want to make sure that we make it very queryable so that it populates what we want it to populate. And if we leave it open to interpretation, the human who's doing the querying might put boundary conditions that are different than what we actually want. And so I think getting the email request right would be like, and and this is something we're not going to do over just verbally right now. This is something that requires like writing. So I'm not um, equipped to do it um, verbally only. But anyway, um, but I think we get the email criteria down right. Then we know that that's, Oh, we're happy with that. Then we have to think. Okay, now how do we wear this for the phone? Also, given uh, Richard's experiences, and and for the phone, you have to remember it's probably one hundred percent human interface. There's probably no querying. It's probably this human process of ticking. Like I think it was tick marks. That's honestly what it sounds like. And I've heard of that happen, f- happening happening uh, federally. So it's a thing. Um, and so we want to ch- ch- you know model off of the email query, but make it so that we know we're only dealing with humans and probably it looks like the process that Richard described. And, um, and then when we feel like it's really going to return what we're asking for, then we're ready. So I'd say this is probably just some back and forth that we need to do in writing. Yeah, Uh, I think we can do a good job.
1: Yeah. So you're suggesting we define our search criteria. In in the uh, open records request, correct. So we're like uh, from uh, November, whatever the day after election was, until December 10th. We want to see every email that has the words election, Trump, um, uh, <laughs> whatever else. Search terms. You want you want to define all the search terms. Yeah. So that when they basically have to take our our search criteria, our search um, algorithm, and apply it to their emails, and and give us back the results. And
2: just, just Ellie, just to better educate me, when you're doing open public records requests like that, um, I I can imagine that there's like one portal for the whole government. You have to go to the individual department, right? Yeah, you have
0: to go to the right agency.
2: Right agency, right, right, or the right organization, department, or agency, right? So so whoever, and then they they follow um, each all of the agencies you know that comprise the, the the government. Um, the bureaucracy of the state um, they're they're bound by the same laws for for disclosure right but might have different internal practices?
0: Um, yes uh, except for like the legislature does have its own laws so um, that's a little bit different but my understanding is other state agencies have more or less the same law but every single agency has its own process and mm-hmm. agencies uh, vary in the extent to which, Um, they ask you to pay for it. So some agencies, like the educational agencies, like we don't charge for the work very often. Well, it depends on how demanding it is. If it's really involved, like we're going to charge, um, the person has to pay. Um, And then if it's relatively simple and similar to the duties we do on a daily basis, like by we, I mean like someone like me, um, then we just kind of throw it in there with the other relevant stuff that we do. And so um, and, and if someone's getting a little cocky with their request, like they keep asking me to change things, then we're like, hey, like maybe at this point you should start paying. I mean, like we're really, <laughs> we're really polite about it, but uh, it comes to that. And then sometimes they're like, oh, no, thanks. This is fine. And so anyways, uh, other agencies will make you pay right away, like for anything that is above and beyond what they else they were doing that day. Um, so we have to be prepared for the possibility of a cost. And the cost could either be kind of like a flat fee or it could be uh, like a, like hourly labor costs. So also what it would cost can vary quite a bit.
1: Yeah, so I was gonna put it in there like uh, if it goes over $100 or something, tell me. <laughs> uh, Cause yeah, they, they can charge for their um, reasonable um, yeah. um, hours spent uh, fulfilling the request. They can charge you for paper if you re- uh, request a paper copy they can charge that you for you know, reasonable costs. Yeah, and um, there, there is no universal portal, which um, to me, it, it would be a lot um, cleaner if there was a portal with uh, like a form you filled out and you sent it to one department and they forwarded it to the appropriate department. Um, right now, it's um, like Ellie described you send it to the particular um, department you want or area of the government you want to request the records from. And then, if you have a problem with the the way that it's fulfilled, your request is fulfilled. Then you can appeal. Um, you can appeal to the AG's office <laughs> to have them in, in either inve- investigate or, um, or audit. Yeah. So we have we can appeal. We can appeal. I guess <laughs> to someone else within the same office. I don't know how it works now. I mean, I'm assuming. Um, I'm assuming that they. Uh, they have some procedure in place there, but I guess I don't know and until we go through it. We don't know, um, especially without having someone like Ellie who's tried to fulfill these requests before. We don't even know what, um, when necessarily how they handle these um, and, and what their attitude is towards them and uh, how, you know, I'm sure each department handles them a little differently. So it'll be a good learning experience either way, regardless of what we um, come up with, um, what they give us back. So it'll be interesting and fun. We'll report here and, um, I guess I I would like to get the group's opinion on the idea that the AG's office is actually um, actually cares what the people of North Dakota thinks. Um, in my, if I was the AG, <laughs> um, I would I would take my duty seriously to be an independent um, enforcement agency. So I, the public's opinion is is not a part of what uh, my calculation is. At least that's the way I, I read the, the duty of the AG's office is to independently execute the laws of North Dakota and defend the laws of North Dakota um, against the federal government or any other entity. And that's the extent of it. And so if the public wants me to do, to do this or that, I, I would obviously listen, but I don't think I am gonna make um, any difference to what I do. And I certainly wouldn't cite the public, um, public's opinion on whether I join a, a, a meaningless lawsuit. Um, I think um, there should be a degree of independence within the agency because you can't be seen to um, to, to favor one group or the other. And um, all you do is open yourself up for manipulation or politic politicization of, of the office, which seems like that's the last thing you want to do. Um, you know, like we just spoke of, it would have been easy to, if, if they were just ticking down yes or no um, opinions on whether what they should do, then you can easily overwhelm that system. It's not a representation, necessarily a representation of what the will of the people is, even if the will of the people is mm-hmm. something you should be using um, to make decisions in the first place, so I, I just think it's, it's uh, the idea that that, that would be a, a, a factor in doing something seems like uh, not the thing they should be doing. But what do you guys think?
2: Well, and I I would say this, you know, this is kind of my, I I am you know I am just a you know, coastal elites would consider me poor white trash, right? Rural trash, um, you know, come come from no means. But just my observation, his involvement of us in the. Um, Affordable Care Act and that overturning, and now this, and, you know, he has a record. Ag e. Wayne Stenheim has a long record of service to the people of North Dakota, and I thank him for that service. All of the people should, but on the other side of that, it's apparent that he cannot separate himself from party politics, and it's time for him to go. He's been there long enough, and it's time to turn over the helm and, and vote him out. Um, that's would be my final kind of like thought on that. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the way I, I, I see it.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Makes plenty of sense. Um, he's done some good things for us. I, I agree. Um, this is a turn for him that I'm not particularly comfortable with. And, um, so I, I would say that if people really did call in large numbers, And that was persuasive to him. It kind of shows that some of the techniques that we have for persuading legislators is now just being done to other government officials, even if it's not as good of a fit. I mean, that sort of process um, for legislative branch at any level where you, you know, tally calls because that's how you can keep track. I think that's okay. Um, I think the attorney general aspect of the situation is I just wish that he had looked at the law itself or i mean the lawsuit itself and looked at relevant laws and just said "Hmm, this is uh not consistent with the law so this is a bad thing to pursue you know i you know you can you could favor trump or want to be in alliance with his voters and simultaneously intelligently perceive that a lawsuit is stupid and like (laughs) that's what should have happened that to me like Um, his, his job was to be good at understanding the law. And, and so it just seems like a weird time when, okay, I would say that public opinion can, could be a tiebreaker in genuine cases of ambiguity. It might help you know how to interpret a law. I, I, and that's beyond my area of expertise. I don't even know what that looks like, what conditions are met in that situation. But, um, I just think that he behaved as if he was a legislator which is kind of strange and yeah. uh, and not yeah. a lawyer
1: yeah. yeah well that's a good yeah. point ellie and that is you know, that, what I, what i was thinking was that um well so you know this lawsuit that if it would have been successful would have overturned one state would have been able to overturn another state's election results um, if we set aside the idea of what kind of legal argument you could use to do that, um, what it, what the outcome of that um, uh, decision would be was that it would undermine the laws of every state, including the state of North Dakota. So if the AG has a uh, duty to defend the laws of North Dakota, in my opinion, he can't join a lawsuit that would undermine the laws of North Dakota, which if they yeah. had won, it would have. It undermine the laws of all the states, you know, and it would have given power to um, basically the federal governments to come in and dis, um, disallow um, election results when they didn't like it. Uh, so for me, I thought it was a, a breach of duty, number one. And then number two, you can't listen to people. It can't be a popularity contest. You're not set up to take an accurate poll of the of the state, number one. And number two, that's not part of your duty either. You're part of, your duty is to be independent. Independent execution and enforcement <laughs> of the law, and that's it. And uh, if you start politicizing it or taking a, you know, a poll, <laughs> uh, it becomes another politi- political part of our lives, and it's not set up to be that at all. Um, I, I think
2: it's rather shameful, actually. Um,
1: right. I just and so, <laughs> yeah. Going back to the you know um, trying to overturn Obamacare, you know there the, there are two ways they can do that, which is, you know, either the laws of North Dakota are in um, uh, kind of conflict with the federal law. And so at that point, he he does have a duty to defend our laws. So even if he doesn't like it, he has to go and, and have that argument um, in a district court or, or a federal court somewhere, because that's his duty. Um, but if he just joins a lawsuit because he thinks... The, it's a bad law. <laughs> if he thinks the federal laws, that's again, that's not his role. That is not his role to go and try to legislate at a national level. He has the one job and it's to defend the laws of North Dakota. Yeah. And if he starts making it into like, I'm going to make this into a political statement, you know, other, blue state um, attorney generals do this too. And it's become, a, I guess, an accepted thing that if um, if you're a big state with a lot of money and you want to push the federal government in a certain way, you'll sue them. Um, to my mind, if is, is, you can only do that if your state laws are in conflict with the the, the national federal laws. If they're not, then it's just political grand, grandstanding, and I don't like it. I think it's a misuse of the okay. office and the funds, the public funds. And that might be that
2: might be part of what it is. Is he's politically grandstanding? You know, because wouldn't he come up for election in the next cycle in twenty twenty
1: two? I don't know that offhand. I'm not
0: sure. Um, but I want to let you guys know who is talked about as having um, AG potential in political circles, and that is Shannon Rose Jones, a representative from the Fargo area.
2: Yeah, I'm familiar with with um, Shannon Rose Jones. Right. I've, yeah, she was a big supporter of. She was a big. She was huge opposition to uh, 2018 Measure One. Um, yeah, and, and so in there you also have kind of some um, you know family elitism going on. Her father's a senator. You know, has been a senator for a long time. Her her cousin is now a senator. She was a junior senator in the. I actually had a conversation with her because I was concerned with some language that she was using at a function in in speaking about her fellow legislators. Um, and she gracefully graciously gave me that conversation, and it ended well. But um, yeah, so that, that's kind of that, that plutocracy, I guess. I don't know what other kind of word to put on it, but um, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing
0: that. No doubt she's- I know, her, I know her kind of two contexts. We were both on um, Governor Burgum's task force for higher education governance. Okay. And um, she has at times been an ally of the Women's Network. Um so, when it comes to gender issues, she is our friend in pushing back against the humiliation of women that some of the legislature seems so hell bent on. Um, but I know that her family um, is a is problematic um, from the viewpoint of uh, labor activists in the state, so she 's at an uh, an interesting intersection of north dakota politics where she is aligned with some of my peeps and opposed to some of my peeps and i, I think she's a very smart woman
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um I, I do like her a lot better than a lot of legislators <laughs> but, but yeah i i take everything you're saying as um making it kind of unclear exactly what kind of attorney general she would be. Although I do think she would be competent. I can be pretty sure of that, but, uh, how she would, um, what kind of decisions she would make when they're really tough. I'm not sure.
2: She, um, she also is very, you know, I, 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 from just the perspective of engaging her. So, so there's two things I noted. Um, she is very much, um, uh, in for in, um, in favor of criminal justice reform, of healthy criminal justice reform. I know that of her, uh, and I thought that was a very positive thing. Um, on the other side of that, that kind of to speak to that autocracy and elitism and stuff is um, I, I was in a we were in a small forum of, um, again, you know, before it was even named Measure One, and and um, you know, I had brought up that you know only when the people are fully educated or fully knowledgeable can they govern themselves. And, you know, she made the comment, well, you ought to come door knocking with me sometime. And I I just kind of, you know, I, I didn't know how to kind of really respond to that other than, yeah, I, I guess not everybody is knowledgeable or wants to be engaged, but, you know, I just I found it. So I I can see where she could be affected, but I could also see where she would be a party loyalist and not take on that, I don't know, just would be easily maybe swayed by party. Um, and that, that's the hard yeah, part. And,
0: really know. You know, I think if you'd had time to respond, because I, that sense seems like you were kind of on, on the spot and, uh, but with time to respond, I think a response, a good response would have been, oh, I've definitely gone door knocking before. I just came to a different conclusion Yeah, because, you know, like, uh, most, uh, most active progressives have experienced door knocking for one organization or candidate in their lives. Uh, have some idea how it goes down. And we've all witnessed clueless people, for sure. Um, I think that our conclusion, I I don't know, I I really should only speak for myself, but I know a lot of people uh, that I work with share my feeling that people deserve democracy. And you can't, um, with the exception of like really heinous crimes, I don't think that there's any amount of stupidity in a person that somehow gets rid of that human right. Like I think that self-determination is a human right, basically. And if someone is clueless and ignorant to the point where, you know, they're making they're just not understanding things or they're they have some kind of political stupidity or something. I mean, I just don't think that, that means that they aren't entitled to self-governance. I think that it's probably a pretty long process of education to get them on board. And it definitely means that something was missed as they were getting educated and coming up and becoming an adult. And um I basically blame society for that, our civilization. Like I, I think that like we drop the ball if someone is entirely clueless about self-governance. And I guess I just don't conclude that it any the inevitability of it. It seems like some folks um, think that means that that's then how it's going to be. And they, they lack imagination when it comes to uh, imagining what it would be like to have great civic education and um, have, you know, and there are going to be people who are just not that interested no matter what, no matter how educated they are. And that like, maybe there's some kind of balance in human society when not everyone sticks their nose in governance all the time. I mean, maybe we're not all meant to be these, you know, just extremely civically engaged people. But but we do need the consent of people who aren't really that into it, you know, people who just want to vote and they're not interested in doing much else. And they'd like to vote intelligently. Uh, you know, If some, for some people, that's all we're going to get out of them. But they we still deserve their consent when it comes to governing on their behind. And I think that's what's really important about representation. And so I don't know. I just think that um, I think it is telling when when someone just concludes that those frustrating experiences means people don't deserve democracy. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, anyone's a bad person or anything like that, but I think that, you know, I'd like more uh, engagement with these questions and more growth on the part of lawmakers when it comes to, you know, uh, grappling with really tough questions about what it means to represent people who might be asleep Mm -hmm. at the wheel and what your role is in, um, amplifying people's voices when they haven't learned how to use their own voice yet.
2: Nice. Very nice, Ellie, Thank you. I, I particularly like the part about, you know, just because someone, you know, has been, you know, because I can relate to that specifically, um, you know, I didn't learn to read till I was in the fourth grade. Um, you know, I moved around a lot to different schools because of my upbringing. You know, I didn't get a consistent kind of education about history and civics. You know, all of this is coming to me very late in my life. Um, so, yeah, you have to give room for people to, to grow into it and choose to engage or not engage. But And I also know lots of people who who are very intelligent, much more intelligent than I, and are very knowledgeable of current events. They read the paper every day. They watch what's going on, you know, um, in, in, in the legislature. But all they want to do is vote. That, that's all they want to do. They don't want to be out there. They're, you know, trusting that the people that they put it up. So I, I, I get that. I get that. And that that is a very apt. Um, I'll respond that way next time. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think it's a really interesting response, Ellie, um, for two reasons. I think we've talked about this before, but it's the idea of it's a republic, not a democracy. So um, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go door to door and you're and you you think that um You already have some suspicions about democracy in the first place, and these these experiences can just uh, reconfirm those suspicions. And what the suspicion is, I am not necessarily uh, interested in everyone's opinion. Um, I'm here to represent you, but once I'm representing you, I don't necessarily care what you think because you're not engaged in in taking it as seriously as I think you should, you know, participating in the manner I think is appropriate um, or with the level of intellect or whatever. Whatever is um, the animating feature of her elitism or the, that kind of person's elitism, I think it just feeds into that ideology, which is, you know, it's a republic, not a democracy. The second thing, which I think is a more interesting um area of discussion for this group particularly would be how do you uh, educate civic engagement um i I'll, I'll give you two impre- two um uh, impressions of school systems that i that i have um, I think are accurate based on my experience, at least. Number one, it's a very passive experience that we've set up. Our system is very much sit there and shut up, and listen to the teacher, and later repeat what the teacher said, or memorize what you're supposed to memorize. Uh, so it's very much um, a, a sit and receive model. Uh, it builds a, a certain amount of passivity um, and dos, that makes people docile, docile to um, orders. And to following directions, and makes them into you know ideally makes them into very good office workers um, and people that don't question you know very good bureaucrats, <laughs> uh, and and that's the the school system kind of reinforces that through its structure, enforces a sense of
2: obedience.
1: Right, make makes you know, that's part of growing up is to learn to shut up and <laughs> listen to the teacher, and then later repeat it, and then you're a good you're a good person, a good girl or a good boy. Um, so. I think that is fair or not. I mean, different teachers will have different spins on it. And I definitely had some really good teachers who didn't follow that model and some other ones that very much follow that model. So I don't want to paint all teachers or all education experiences in the same light, but I think generally that's kind of the system we have. So if that's the system, how are you going to get active engagement in participatory um, democracies? Um, How are you going to get that um, from that kind of system? Um, The system tells you to be docile and passive. And democracy, at least as we kind of define it, is an act of participatory experience um, where you have to be not only educated about issues and, and the the way the system operates in your role within the system, but then you have to actually put in time, effort, and uh, you know kind of play along. You got to play the system. You can't just sit there and vote every two years, but otherwise disengage. So my question would be, given what we know about the educational system, How do we expect to create civic engagement based off that system? Is it the system itself that needs to be tweaked or overhauled, or do we have to um, have kind of an extra, something that's outside of our educational system, which um, would be kind of what we're trying to do with this group, which would be you actually experience the idea of democracy within a group setting where everyone's respectful and listening and and we're having a meeting of minds where different perspectives are given uh, equal weight. Um, or I guess, or or not, or, or we just continue along this path of you know, where people, most people don't participate in democracy in the way we think they should. So um, Ellie, I'm interested in what you think, because I know you've, you've studied some of the, those ideas and, and you kind of work in a part of state government that, that sometimes um, has to think about these issues. So um, is it possible within our current school system to teach democracy? teach the participatory elements of democracy and not just the formal, forma, formal uh, structures of our, our version of American democracy?
0: Yes. And uh, I think the number one challenge to um, beefing up our civic education, which I actually think there would be a lot of political will for um, among, among a lot of people. Um, I, I, I don't think that Folks I know in education at at many levels um, are philosophically very open to bolstering the aspect of education. The problem uh, in my experience is that um, literacy and poor literacy and poor numeracy basically derail a a lot of uh, creative opportunity in education. Like basically so many children are struggling to read and so many children are struggling to have basic quantitative reasoning, you know, math skills that um, there's so much effort expended on fixing those gaps. And then the whole system is so um, collectively underfunded for anything more than that. Um, And it's, I mean, it's like education in the United States is kind of like an entire social safety net. Like it's a huge thing that's so much more than just education but there are, and there's so much desperation for help from communities. And in some of those communities, the only help that, that comes through for them is in education. Like that's where they get food or something like that. Um, and so we have a lot of poverty and other kinds of trauma going on in our communities. And those children show up to school way behind. And, um, and then of course, when it's hard to get them to catch up, the schools get blamed. Rather than um, being thanked for such a difficult undertaking, which is fixing poverty, even though there's like not a real policy solution being offered. And so you know I think that uh, these things are we we need to aspire to better civic education. But there's a fire in the house right now, you know, and it is a lot of children are struggling across so many different dimensions, and schools are often the only intervention they receive. And uh, we need to just, we need to know that it's really difficult to fix something when there's such a bigger, broken system. And that is that, I mean, just our social and economic system in general is why so many children are traumatized in poverty and stuff like that. Um, But I I just wanted to say that, you know, there are some people, their schooling is over. They're through the system. And our only hope to help them now is through um, performing the activities with them. And I think that we aim to change the entire system as much as we can, and it will just have to be gradual. That's, I just don't see anything else as realistic. But meanwhile, let's model what we want to do. And, you know, so you mentioned this group as a, an opportunity to model the kind, that kind of democratic participation. I think there's a lot of opportunities um, to model it. And, I think we should just seize as many as we can and keep demonstrating to people what they deserve. You know, I think that um, in the Anti-Measure 2 effort, I think Dustin and I, we modeled civic engagement for people. And we told people that this is for them. Like, you know, like, this, like join us and, so that we can collectively protect our own power. Um, and I think that I, I felt very good modeling that. And I think that it caught some people's attention. And I think we should keep doing it across context um, as much as possible. And I wanted to share briefly one really interesting experience I had in democracy that I I don't know. it was it, It's not going to sound that interesting, but it was interesting in my own head. Um, so I think it was maybe February 2018 or so. I was at a statewide Deb PL meeting. And we were talking about making some plans in the future, and I was a discussion lead on it. And um, essentially, what was discovered is that the game plan um, tentatively conflicted with class B, class B bas- basketball stuff, like throughout the state. And it's not an air of expertise of mine. I really am not, uh, you know, I'm a nerd. I'm not a sports person. Um, and so, but I mean, I, uh, I appreciated that people seemed really concerned. Like, I was like, oh man, people uh, are really not happy with this conflict. And so, and there was a lot of uh, people concerned about it and kind of, this is a big room with a lot of people and um, people are kind of spread out and I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's like a hundred people. I'm not exactly sure, but um, and so, being that this isn't my area of expertise, um, and these people had a lot to say, I just sort of like stood up. Maybe I was already standing up because I was announcing some information, but, and then I had a mic, um, and I just started walking around with the mic and like let the person express their concern, and then I walked to the next person. I just kept doing that, and people were like really into it, and I could see people who weren't even talking. To, you know they didn't want to use the mic but they were watching me they had these like grins on their face and i was like i was just so confused like i was it was kind of cool like i was like oh people are really into this but to me it was just sort of like oh boy the people have spoken i don't know anything about this so <laughs> let me go around and have people articulate the problems so i can understand it better and maybe i can help fix it and so i was just doing that and it seemed like people it, it's like simultaneously people were really primed and ready for it, but they weren't used to doing it either. Like, I felt kind of like, oh, people are hungry to express themselves, but the reason they're responding the way they are is because they don't often get this opportunity and like this sort of integrated, like large collective discussion. It was just something really interesting. And, and some people were a little upset because they felt like this should have been a no brainer. Like, how did you nerds not know not to conflict with Class B basketball? And, you know, I, I don't have a good answer for that. But um, so I wasn't defensive, though, because I just knew, hey, like, I just want to listen to people here. And anyways, but it got a little it got a little funny, like maybe a little like I was keeping it upbeat, but there were some people who were obviously a little irritated. And so the other members of the committee I was on, because I was just leading discussion on behalf of a broader committee, um, some of them kind of popped up and started standing with me. So Dustin Pyre was one of them and Pat Hart was the other. And maybe it was like there were a couple other people I don't know as well. So then at some point it's like literally all of us up together and like sort of collectively leading the conversation where people are voicing what they're unhappy about or the conflict. And it kind of just became this moment. Like I, I, it's hard to describe, but it was this sort of democracy unfolding, even though it sounds like it's a really mundane topic. And I remember um, afterwards uh, Pat Hart and Dustin Pyre were both like, wow, so that's democracy. Like they, like they said that. Um, so anyways, it just kind of showed me that with, I didn't mean to do this, but I'm really glad that I did just kind of injecting a democratic process into a grievance and just like, just sort of not, not being defensive. I think that was like the key to, it's like, I was like, okay, don't get mad at anybody. Um, They don't mean to be rude, even though some people maybe bordered on it at first because they didn't know if they were going to be taken seriously, maybe. Anyways, it's kind of a mundane experience, but it was also kind of profound to anyone who was there and and like experiencing it. And it just made me realize like, we need to practice democracy everywhere, all the time, whenever we can. And it's not easy and it's not always the most, um, it's not always smooth. And it's certainly often not efficient. But the human energy was really good, even though there were people who were irritated. The human energy was so good in that kind of uh, collective experience that it it just told me like this is how humans are supposed to do things together.
1: Wow, that's a great story, Ellie. Thanks for sharing. Um, I, I can I see the room myself, and uh, if I if I was I am a basketball fan, uh, but but I, I've been in enough uh, Class B towns to know that the Class B tournament is a huge um, social. Uh, calendar thing, mm-hmm. the, you know, entire towns go to Bismarck or wherever the tournament is, and that's that's something that's planned almost a year ahead of time. So for the Democratic Party to um, kind of conflict with that schedule. Uh, if I was in those towns, I think the democratic party doesn't care about rural North Dakota. So yeah, I think that was a great opportunity for, for practicing democracy and, um, kudos to you guys and the other leadership, uh, members to uh, kind of go with that and let people, um, express themselves. Cause, uh, that, that was a really great story and thanks for sharing. And, uh, I wanted to talk more a little bit, it, it is kind of closing time here. I'll let you guys have some, cl- some closeout thoughts here in, in a second, but, um, this idea of, uh. Talking to people that aren't engaged in the political process, but trying to take their opinion um, seriously. So giving it the respect it deserves, even though maybe they're not able to articulate themselves very well or or they don't have a full grasp of the the minutia of the issues. Um, You know, it it can be difficult, um, especially when you're trying to educate and also elicit an, an opinion at the same time. Um, my experience, and this has been greatly helped by uh, President Trump getting elected for four years, because uh, I was completely flummoxed <laughs> when it happened. And uh, you know, and looking back into the early 2000s, I was similarly flummoxed when people voted for George W. Bush. Didn't understand it. Um, you know, they're voting against their economic interests. Clearly, why are you doing this? It's crazy. I can't understand these people. Um, but uh, I think as I've gotten a little older and smarter, perhaps. Um, what I don't understand about it from a rational logical standpoint, um I've started to understand from more of an intuitive standpoint, so even when people can't articulate logically why they're doing something or it, perhaps it's illogical that w- what they're doing or doesn't uh, isn't quite rational at at the heart is an intuition about something, and so they're actually voting with their intuition, they're voting with their emotion um. Uh, so, uh, to try to resolve something they can't articulate and they don't know the exact answer but the thing that is driving them the intuition is it's almost always correct and true. And so if you're, what I've tried to do when I've had these moments with people that perhaps are not educated or 100% tuned in, is to figure out what their intuition is telling to you know what they're trying to tell me about their intuition through what they're telling me they believe in. and. If you can figure out what their intuition is telling them, based on the way that they're inarticulating it to you, uh, then there's a, there's a huge amount of truth there, and in, in knowledge and wisdom in people. And if we can kind of mine mine their uh, their intuition, um, people know what they do. They have a very good sense of what's the right thing to do. Um, we just have to be able to listen to it sometimes, uh, um, in a, with a different set of ears, um, based on where they're coming from and not where we're coming from. And it's very difficult. It's, it's taken me 20 years to figure out um, why someone would vote for George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump. Um, but I think I'm starting to get there because I'm not listening to their rational arguments or judging them rationally, but it's more of an intuition, emotional response that is at the heart of what they're doing. And it's a true response, and it's something we need to listen to. And when you're having these experiences, democracy, I think that's what comes through if you're able to sit in it and sit in the uncomfortableness and uh, the inefficiencies and the length and stuff, that's what comes out and it is human. And then that's where we connect really is, is being able to share our intuitions with each other because we can become something that's, um, you know a collective um, um, example of wisdom. Uh, With that, I want to throw it around to you guys for kind of some closing thoughts. Uh, Jim, I want to throw it to you first because I know we haven't had a chance to hear from you yet. Um, I don't know if you're stuck in unmute mode or somewhere you can't talk, but I'll give you a second here if you want to unmute yourself and uh, give us some closing thoughts. How you been? If you are trying to talk, we are not hearing you. And I'll give you approximately 10 more seconds to figure it out and then I'm gonna move on. All right. Uh, I guess Jim is stuck in mute purgatory. Um, Richard or Ellie, any closing thoughts on today? Great conversation, by the way. Oh, there, Jim went away. Um,
0: Richard, you can go ahead.
2: Thank you, Ellie, very much. one, I want to say I always appreciate these conversations. Um <clears throat> it's a continual learning process and it's just incredible. And as someone who, you know, we, we kind of talked about this last time, you know, mm-hmm. gaining that critical thinking component or you know, coming from that and being dialectic, that's very important to me. Um and so is public service. Um, but I guess I just want to respond really quickly to the conversation about education um, and how we educate and, and, you know, you were talking about kind of that, uh, Ryan, that that way we educate to just bring people into obedience. I think that we need to do a better job. I mean, I don't want to go against local governance, like especially when it comes to school boards and stuff like that. I mean, I realize the value in that autonomy and God, Ellie, please correct me if I'm just like way off base here and help me better understand, but I, I respect that, I, I do. But, you know, when I hear of, you know, stories of, you know, teachers in, you know, certain Southern states who say, I will not teach accurate history. I will teach it only from a you know, Confederate perspective or, you know, you know, I. I and other teachers saying that they won't um, do that. And then and then I'm gonna bring it a little bit broader into those kind of like three big subjects that, that are kind of like hard. And so history, accurate history, um, accurate education about self-awareness of sexuality and, and like the national um, health, uh, or the national uh, sexual health uh, education um, standard, um, and, and some other standards. I, I just, <clears throat> I just think when it comes to education, we need to do a better way, better job at figuring out how we apply some of how do we develop. Number one, develop from an equity or an equity perspective, and through that lens, um, <clears throat> a, a better understanding of standardized education that can be applied across the board to better educate children um, in the, these regards. So that, that's the first thing. So I would ask, I guess, Ali to kind of respond to that. Am I, am I, you know, because I know that there's so much left up to individual school districts. But on the other side, I'm seeing the data that backs the logic of having some standards in these areas, such as history, um, such as, um,
0: you know, I, I definitely think the federal government has a role to play in ensuring a certain standard of education and, you know, we can look to Congress for that kind of work. I, I do think that um, we should all have a little bit of healthy skepticism about how feasible certain kinds of um, standardization, how feasible it is to implement them. And I just want people to know that a lot of regulation that comes from the federal government when it comes to education, a lot of it is really well-intentioned, but not always effective in implementation. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of um, just federal government stuff in the area of education for North Dakota um, that's a little a bit of a misfit. And, I mean, basically, we are an unusual state we're not like we're like we have a lot of really distinguishing features um our low population and our rural environment really make for a kind of distinct experience and there's only a few other states that are as small as us or as rural as us and so the federal government is not really catered to us and so it like there's a reason why people get heartburn over federal government and education stuff. It's because there are sources of aggravation. Uh, there are policies that aren't implemented in that meaningful of a way. And um, sometimes people closer to the work, you know, more local really do know best. So it, it's just, it's tricky. And we should have a Congress that's good enough to actually navigate this. And we don't. Um, So that's definitely a problem, but I would also say that um, because the federal government isn't really performing as it should uh, in some ways because Congress, I mean, the federal government performs okay, it's just that Congress doesn't set it up for success a lot of times. Um, So given that, given that that's just what we're living with right now, you know, we can aspire to do better there, but it makes the school boards that much more important because they have to pick up so much slack And so it's just a reminder that it matters who we elect to school boards. It just simply matters. Mm -hmm. And we need to have people who believe in democracy and who believe in um, an honest assessment of American history and um, situating the today in an honest history. Like we need people like that on the board. And we need we need to give them friends to be on the board with, you know, like it's not, it, the one lone uh, forward thinking person on a school board can't do much. Uh, in fact, they might even be um, sort of intimidated into silence. And so we need to pay attention to school board races. We need to, uh, we can lobby uh, district superintendents and school board members like we can any other public servant. Um, and so I would say, Pay attention, get involved. And just knowing that um, the federal government isn't going to rescue us anytime soon, maybe we can make the curriculum at our local schools better, more more healthy for our community, more fair, um, and more honest, and ones that are safer space for students of color, for example. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I try to, e- I'm easing into some of these uh, concerns in my Mandan community, because I'm very interested in um, our schools doing well, and I've run for school board in the past, and I'll run for it again. And I'm, you know, I'm very concerned about the experience that Indigenous students have in the school district. Um, I see some good changes. They have hired a cultural expert. I don't, I can't remember what his job is, but there's this guy who works for the district now who helps them deal with cultural issues, like, for example, anti-native racism. Um, I started emailing him, you know, open the lines of communication between me and him. Me is just a really aware community member. And um, so that's a move in the right direction, you know. And so let's let's all pay close attention to the school districts in our communities. Let's be good citizens there, um, even though we need we need to aspire to probably some federal standards. Uh, that can really improve things that's not going to happen quickly, and we still have a lot of I don't know, Congress just still sucks basically. So, get involved in the school board. Um, though so to me, sometimes I'm just such a pragmatist that I you know I acknowledge what I wish would be the case but isn't, and then I quickly move on to what is actually realistic right now. And that's this kind of question, as it sends me in that direction, too. Um, you know, I know what I wish our federal government could support, it doesn't currently what can I do right now in my community? And I can run for school board and I can communicate with board members and I can communicate with the superintendent and the assistant superintendent. And like, I do those things. And um, although I am concerned about, you know, curriculum issues and mandan public schools, um, actually, I feel like I have to deal with the more impending emergencies first. And so, you know, you gotta think about how the pandemic has disrupted so much. And so knowing that kids are still getting food through the schools, like that's going well, um, kids are have a choice into the educational delivery method they have right now. So Mandan has let uh, kids choose to do face-to-face instruction or distance ed. Um, you know, I've been kind of uh, minding those things. And I think when COVID is more in the rearview mirror, then it's a good time to go back to some of the curriculum issues that we're describing. Thanks. I think this emergency has just made us make sure we keep the lights on and keep children from being too hungry. And I, again, I guess I just have to say once again, the poverty that our communities live in is what gets in the way and, and and us failing to do, do enough about it is right. what uh, kind of ties the hands of educational institutions who are charged first with a more basic you know, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have to meet children's more basic needs before we can aspire to um, truly fantastic other changes.
2: And one of the shout outs I would like to give this week too is something that I just, or I've just i known about that's been in the works for a while. They've been working for two years now as the North Dakota uh, Child Sexual Abuse Prevention Task Force. Um, and, and although I, I inquired about being on that task force, in 2019, their work was already underway, uh, and they have those good people on there. Um, they have, you know, an appropriations bill that's coming forth that we want to follow um, to instill a director. They've done their great due diligence. Um, they're probably going to ask a, you know, go through the Senate first and ask a Republican senator to sponsor. They already have Clemens um, because understanding that it comes to the Senate first and it comes from a majority party and might have a better backing for that appropriation. It's a very smart bill. So as we kind of talked about last time we were together and following these bills, um, I would ask everyone to kind of, I wanna give give a shout out to the North Dakota uh, Children's Sexual Abuse uh, Prevention Task Force for their great work over these last two years. And they will have more, um, I kind of been helpful, I guess, in prompting a larger public exposure um, so we understand that good work and the need for that work of intervention, prevention, sustainability, um, you know, offender treatment, those kinds of uh, things. Um, and just note that um, I'm very passionate about this. And, you know, given, you know, if you you know earlier in our talk, my understanding of my own personal history. So this is a, a bill I will be tracking and hopefully we get that appropriation for that that directorship to continue this good work. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Richard, um, and, and please keep us abreast of of how that's developing. I think um, that'd be something we'll we'll want to um, follow closely as it goes through the process. And thank you for your your answer, Ellie, and and your
0: um, yes, observations you,
1: about the educational system. To me, I, I um I try to take it <laughs> take a take a step back even from what it's like, you know, I've, I've, I've gone through first grade again this year. Um, I'm retaking first grade um, virtually with my daughter, who's taking (laughs) first first grade online, the online learning. So I'm going, I'm going through all, I'm going back through learning how to count money and telling time and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, But so when I think of the education system, I, I, it goes back to the economics and then to me, um, We've structured our public life around economic imperatives. So school exists to create good workers so we can support the economy and the economy supports people's material needs Uh, and it's this big circle. Uh, However, I would say that, you know, instead of being concerned about the production of of goods and the production of, you know, making the GDP grow by 4% every year, an alternate uh, arrangement would be to focus on the production of human beings and make that our our, our priority. And um, with the idea that if you produce superior um, people, that the, the economics will take care of themselves because they will be um, fully autonomous and um, uh, potentialized uh, individuals. And as such, they'll be able to f- perform economic functions at a high degree and be good workers and be good entrepreneurs. Um, but because we have this uh, our priorities switched up and make the economic priorities number one, the production of people becomes um, subservient to their economic um, functions. And that's where education sometimes goes wrong. So, I think if we were able to switch it into how do we instead of how do we produce the most goods or produce the the highest GDP, but instead, how do we produce the best people, the best citizens, um that that changes a lot of things. Um, I think in the educational system and p- potentially for the economy. I think that there's a lot of unmet potential within humanity that we've um, lost because we're trying to exploit them for their um, passivity and their obedience to um, um, a hierarchy within an economic function. And it doesn't have to be that way. The other thing from a practical standpoint is uh, it really sucks to we make our kids sit in a, in a desk for like eight hours a day. Um, you know, with some recess in there, some gym class. But, um you know, over fifteen years, that's a huge physical toll we're asking them to submit to, that uh, doesn't really have any um, physiological or evolutionary um, science behind it to support it, other than this is what makes a good worker is someone that sits in their desk all day. Um, but to make to ask our children to sit in desks all day seems like some sort of punishment. Um, that doesn't. It's, if there was a way to get them out of their seats and uh, be, you know, have an experiential learning process where they weren't sitting down the whole time, uh, just that one tweak would seem like it could have so much, um, so many um, cascading but positive benefits to just get kids out of their seats. Because we're not, you know, as an adult, I struggle having to sit in front of a computer some days, you know, for eight hours. It sucks, it hurts, and it gets worse every year. It gets harder and harder to do it. Uh, But we're making our kids do this because it's supposedly good for them. And I I just think we need to think about the whole person and not just um, how to make them obedient, but how to make them, you know, how do we produce the best people? And that's really what our, our number one operating principle should be as a society, as a government, as um, civic engagers, is how do we create people, the best people
0: we can? The, the, how do we help people reach their potential um, collectively? Hey, hey, Ryan, you you set me up for such a perfect comment. Can I give it? Yes, please do. Okay. So a lot of, there are a lot of people who might argue that the um, cookie cutter education that you're describing is a result. And I, look, I'm not going to say that this is True or false, or partly true or partly false, I'm going to say it's complicated, um, but there's some merit to the claim that the federal government is responsible for some of that kind of um, almost uh, prison-like conformity expected in schools and the sitting at a desk and lack of structured play time. Some people would point a finger at the federal government and say, that's to blame, and that's what you get for enforcing your standards. And then I would say that if there were standards implemented at the federal level to change the kind of structure of the day, um, the way that it would be measured, it would be someone like me helping the state with accountability on um, whether or not these rules are being met. And they get the stats get so murky that it's really easy to kind of miss the point of what you're actually doing. Um, and so like the the government could start publishing stats on what percentage of a day children spend sitting and what percentage they play, uh, spend playing outside. But that could, and that the stats could be like accurate technically, but they could obscure and not really tell much of a story. And yeah, that could be the way the accountability is put into place. And we know that that's not really what you're talking about. You're talking about something more meaningful and substantive, but a lot of federal solutions do look kind of like that. And I would say that um, in, in a lot of situations where teachers are able to be really creative and um, inject some of their own wisdom, but they are qualified enough to do so, like they, they're getting a salary where you can, the salary attracts a competent person, first right. of all, like that's just important. Um, and then they have some liberty. Teachers come up with really creative solutions to that because teachers know that they have spaz balls in their classrooms. Like, you know, teachers know kids, they do. And, um, and so I can, I'm not, I'm no expert on this. um, But uh, as a parent, I know what I've seen. And the elementary school that my stepdaughters um, attend currently, you know, has a sensory room. So it's a room where there's slime and Play-Doh, and there's a quiet space, and there's, Colorful things with different textures, and it's basically for kids um, with all kinds of needs, but many of them on the autistic spectrum or with some kind of ADHD um, or perhaps potentially other issues. You know, just need a different sensory experience than the normal classroom one. And so, like there are there are communities that are being creative all over the place and changing that model of rigid chair sitting and something that's not a very good fit for young people. And the diminishment of recess is a direct result of, like, kids are more traumatized and live in more poverty, so they come to school less at grade level. So everything becomes about literacy and numeracy. Uh, Recess becomes considered, it becomes kind of unimportant. Um, And then schools are funded less to do, to make up even more social inequity. Um, and so, yeah, recess ends up seeming like a luxury, even though it's so integral to the well being of everyone. Like, kids are better with lots of playtime, and the grown ups who have to deal with them have a better well being when the kids have a lot of playtime. So, uh, you know, it's, I'm just like, yeah, what you're saying is, is legit, but the federal government could easily not really help and pretend it's helping. And it really comes back to, you know, adequately funded schools and liberated teachers and paying salaries for actual experts. And anyways, thank you for letting me um, slam all the info at you. <laughs> that's great. No, thank <laughs> that's, that's you. That's wonderful. I would
1: think, you
2: know, in regard to recess and playtime and and that kind of robust, you know, learning activities that you can incorporate, you know, um, a happy child is a tired child at the end of the day. <laughs>
0: That's For right. real, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think you're also talking about something that I brought up on a couple of podcasts ago, which is the, the quantification bias. When we try to implement these legislatively from top down, uh, you you try to um, what gets um, measured gets observed and and gets you know you can you can tweak the numbers one way or the other if you can count it and you start measuring it, but certain things you can't count. Uh, and i think we're talking about the things you can't count which is an experiential um learning experience and uh you can't really quantify it and so you know the thing we're trying to create doesn't support a bureaucracy um to support it or you know it's kind of counter to a, the the principles of a bureaucracy which would include some quantification and tracking of a certain data so it is kind of trying to use a system that um doesn't support it um, to to create it or to foster it, and so we get the system we get, we get, which is you know standards standardization of um, certain certain learning objectives, and um, I, I I don't have a, a good I a, a good solution because you know when the, the problem with top down bureaucracy is you're going to get stuck with those kind of problems, which is um, the things that be quantified are the things you chase after, but. To my mind, you can't quantify how do you help someone reach their potential. It's very much um, an individual um, uh, specific thing that you couldn't legislate. But I think it starts with changing the way we think about, you know, the, when I when I hear people talk about schools too often, it's how do we create better employees for these businesses? And I, I don't hear anything about how do we create better people? How do we create... Um, uh, people that uh, can flourish in, in today's world. We don't hear about that, it's always like, well, these businesses need better employees because these businesses are not surviving. And so how do we get, and how, North Dakota needs better um, employees. How do we keep these kids here uh, so they can work at our small businesses? But uh, it seems like it's so backwards such um shouldn't we start with good people first making the best people we can and then uh, the rest of it seems seemingly would take care of itself if they're good people you know that have reached their potential and have been well cared for as they've grown up so uh we've got about half over a half hour over so i want to respect everyone's time that's stuck with us this far uh and, and once again thanks everyone for joining us this has been the no name podcast richard ellie you guys have a great afternoon Hi.